Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, buddy. How's everybody doing tonight? Man, Eric, team, thank you so much for leading us uh, tonight in, in worship. It is such a privilege to be able to worship the Lord uh, together as uh, God's church. So tonight, we are back in the book of Colossians, and uh, we've been traveling through it together uh, for a little while now, and we're, uh, we're kind of getting to the point where uh, Paul is going to start kind of laying in uh, not just big picture what, what he is inviting us to see about who Jesus is, but about actually fleshing out what it looks like to be followers of Jesus. Uh, the book of Colossians, one of the, the biggest themes uh, that we find in this book is the theme of the supremacy or the, the, the greatness, the bestness of Jesus, that he is supreme, that he is the, the, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the cosmos, of everything that's ever been created. Jesus is Lord. Everything was created by him and through him and for him, we learn in Colossians 1.16, and he holds everything together, and he is the supreme ruler and authority over the universe, and everything that rivals him, that challenges him, whether it be a philosophy or a way of life or an opinion uh, or, or whatever it may be, must bow its knee to Jesus. Now, we live in a world today uh, that any concept, any belief of the idea that Jesus or any other God might be supreme or the ruler of creation, uh, for most people, they're going to look at that and, and think, uh, I'm not so sure that that could be true. Uh, in fact, we live in a world uh, today that is becoming increasingly post-Christian, which means that for the last uh, couple of hundred years uh, in our cultural context, uh, many people who uh, are a part of this context would have, in fact, most people would have acknowledged to some extent uh, that, that Jesus is the God of the universe, that the Bible is true, that Christianity uh, gives us an understanding of how to know God. And, and yet uh, that is becoming less and less true today. We are becoming what we have been the majority in terms of the religious expression in our cultural context we have been the majority and we are becoming more and more and more the minority. And so we are in a post-Christian context. What's interesting is the book of Colossians is written in a pre-Christian context. Uh, before uh, Rome made Christianity legal, before it declared uh, Christianity the uh, official religion of the state, before uh, the world became Christianized, uh, before all of that took place, we find ourselves... Uh, uh, in the time that the, the book of Colossians was written, we find ourselves recognizing that, man, this world uh, is a very pre-Christian world. And, and the assumptions that, that they had at that time were, uh, how could anyone claim that any one religion or any, any one God was the supreme ruler because there are these other gods that are kind of in contention uh, for that? And yet, Colossians is written and speaks beautifully into both contexts. Uh, and this is a beautiful thing about the timelessness and the eternal nature of the word of God. Uh, Jesus said, nothing's going to pass away from the word, not a jot nor a tittle. And the reality of that uh, is that the word of God is, is eternal and it's also eternally true. That it is something that every person in every time and in every cultural context 
can lean into and recognize that it is actually something that we can stake our lives upon, that it holds true. The book of Colossians was written during a pre-Christian context where they're asking if Jesus could be the supreme God among many gods. And the truth that we're going to see in the book of Colossians is going to be so valuable in their context, but as well for us who we live in a world where people are asking if there's any God at all. And the same answer is true and vital in both contexts. That yes, there is a God and his name is Jesus and no one could ever hope to compare to him because he is the only ruler. He is the only authority. He is the only creator. He is the only one who made everything and that everything was made for. And that creator, ruler, and maker was kind enough to put on human flesh and come to dwell among us so that we might know God. So the book of Colossians is an invitation, number one, to recognize that Jesus is the ruler and the authority and the supreme, but yet that he wants us to know him. And that he wants us to grow in him and walk in him and, and, and to live for him and to allow every fiber of our being to be oriented in his direction. So that's kind of what Paul is going to hit on tonight. Why don't you grab your Bibles? Um, if you have your Colossians journal with you, now's a great time to grab that. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4 tonight. And just to kind of give a little bit of a recap as to where we have been thus far, um, Paul begins the letter of Colossians really just giving thanksgiving for Christ, for who Jesus is, and, and for his work in the lives of his people. And he continues to uh, chart out for those first readers and for us that Jesus is supreme and why Jesus is supreme and that he is the ruler and creator and everything was created by him and through him and for him. He continues to unpack who Jesus is and what he means for people in that, that Christ and the mystery of the gospel is that Christ through faith in him because of what he's done in his life, death and resurrection, Christ actually dwells in his people that Paul says the mystery is that Christ is in you and he's the hope of glory. And then Paul continues by unpacking that in Christ, all of the treasures of knowledge are hidden in him. There, there's nowhere else that we can find absolute truth, transcendent truth, truth that is truer than, than any uh, you know, basic fact that we can observe that in him is, is where all of the treasures of wisdom and the mysteries of who God is are found in him. If you want to know more about God, just look to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the person that we can look at and say, oh, that is what God is like. And so Paul has brought us to this point. And, and part of what the Colossians are, are, are kind of struggling through and what we struggle through today is that the Colossians are being invited to abandon Christ in favor of the popular ideology. Let me try that again. Ideology. 
kind of tried to mesh that with idolatry, and it did not work, guys. It didn't work. Uh, the popular ideology of the day, that that was what the, the Colossian church was being invited into, was being pressured into, is to abandon Christ in favor of the popular ideologies of the day. And here we sit 2,000 years later in central Florida in a world that has gone bananas and there have been uh, so many reasons to struggle in, in this time of, of our human history. And in the midst of it all, people are wondering and, and asking and kind of begging the question, does the Christian worldview truly hold up? Does following after Jesus and asserting the things that he says through his word, does it make sense in our, in our cultural context? And what Paul would tell the Colossians, I believe he would write to us today and say the same thing, is that we should not grow weary, lose heart, and give up. He said, don't give up. Don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon who Jesus is to you and what he has actually done for you by taking on human flesh, dwelling among us, living a sinless life, dying a substitutionary death on the cross that only he could die and not staying dead but resurrecting on the third day so that in him, by faith in him, we could be forgiven of our sin and find life, eternal life and salvation in God. So Paul would say, don't abandon that for the philosophies or the teachings of the world that are around us. And I tell you, those things bombard us everywhere we go, don't they? They bombard us everywhere we go. I constantly find myself going back to the gospel, going back to the scripture, when I, when I read maybe a, a news article, something that pops up on my iPhone in the news app, or I have a conversation with someone and I think to myself, gosh, this world is, is such a struggle in so many ways. And is Jesus actually intervening? And, and all of these moments in life, when, when, I, when I recognize that there are people in my life that are struggling, who are walking through tragedies, and, and I don't feel like I, I may have all the answers for them in the moment, and I asked the question, is following after Jesus worth it? And Paul would say, and scripture would teach us that the answer is resoundingly yes. Yes. So Paul in Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse four, he uses this phrase. I say this in order that. Okay. So as we get into this text, um, it is important for us to recognize that, that we're jumping into the middle of a letter, okay? In the first century, when these letters were passed back and forth to the church, typically they would have been read in one sitting. I know it feels like we're way too busy to read the Bible, but did you know that even at a below average reading speed, you can read the book of Colossians in under an hour, and if you like audio Bibles, you can listen in quite a bit less than that. And, and what we're doing tonight is we're unpacking, we're expounding, we are expositing, we're, we're bringing what, what is so rich in this text, we're bringing it out of the text together in the context of community so that we can suck the, the marrow out of it. But in the first century, they would have heard this kind of in one sitting, and they might have asked some questions about it. They might have had some dialogue about it. But here we are, 2,000 years have gone by, and there's been lots of time to unpack this. There have been lots of time. There's been lots of time to study this. There's been lots of time to dig into this. And so we're going to pull out what we can pull out. But when the Bible 
uh, or really, frankly, any literature you're reading. This is just a good literature thing. But, but biblically speaking, it's very important when you come across a phrase that says something like, I say this so that or in order that it's important to take a look back at what exactly Paul has been saying. Now, we could all go back to chapter one together, and I would actually encourage you, maybe before your head hits the pillow tonight, uh, you know, pop on your favorite audio Bible version and just listen through the book of Colossians, and it'll refresh your memory. But Paul has been walking us through this reality of the supremacy of Christ, Christ being this mystery that he's in us and he's our hope for glory. And there are, there are these people who are kind of bringing some arguments to the table. And Paul is trying to dismantle those by saying Christ is supreme. And in him is all the treasure and all the knowledge that we could ever truly find. So Paul is saying, I'm saying that Christ is the treasure of knowledge so that in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, there's a lot here, but. Uh, just delusion, as we kind of think of the word delusion and plausible arguments, it's very interesting that Paul uses these two words. In English, we can actually pick up on what Paul is doing, even in the original language, in, in Greek. And this is a very interesting thing. So if you were to look up delusion in the dictionary, you would get something that sounds a little bit like this. Delusion is belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality of rational argument, okay? So if someone is delusional, it is because someone has brought a plausible argument to the table and said, hey, uh, you should really recognize this and understand this, but the delusional person actually says, you know what? Regardless of that, I'm going to continue to believe what I believe. And someone would look at that and say, well, that's silly. You seem pretty. Yes, you may participate as well. Right, so you seem delusional. If you have a belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite evidence to the contrary, that's delusional. And plausible arguments... It's very interesting that Paul connects the idea that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Because if you understand the concept of delusion, it is maintaining your belief in the face of plausible arguments that makes one delusional. Is it not? Now, this kind of like was like a, ah, when, I, when I first understood that, but like, Paul, oh, what is Paul saying here? And what Paul is doing is he's using just a little bit of irony to say that what's so backwards about the world in which we live is that the more plausible our arguments seem to be, the more it takes us away from what is more true in Christ. Think about that for a moment. That part of the strategy of the enemy in our lives is to bring things to our table, into our mind, that actually at face value, at surface level, seem to make sense and fly into the face of what we know to be true on a more deep level because it's revealed to us through God's word, because 
It has been handed down to us from generation to generation because it is inherently true in the gospel. So what Paul is actually saying is, don't be deluded by believing a plausible argument. It's kind of an interesting thing. And this idea of a plausible argument is really the idea of like an argument that might be made by an attorney in order to sway the opinion of the listener. And so they're bringing facts to the table, usually slanted, usually the facts that build their case and omit the facts that might call into question their, their, uh, their reasoning, right? And they're bringing arguments to the table to try to weigh into our judgment and make us choose what they are inviting us to believe. And so what Paul is saying is, don't be deluded. Don't become delusional because you believe a plausible argument, which is meant to trick you and to move you away from the truth. Wow. Paul, brilliant. Holy Spirit, way more brilliant, right? So ironically, Paul is saying, don't be delusional because of plausible argument. Wow. Paul continues, and I love this, uh, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. There's a couple of things here. First of all, I love this phrase because like, that's where Christians get the whole, like, I'll be with you in spirit. I won't be there at the prayer meeting, but I'll be with you in spirit, right? Or, uh, you know, I can't make it to that thing, but I'll be with you in spirit. Uh, I really should be using that more often. It's just a fun phrase, you know, I'll be with you in spirit. It makes people kind of look at you strange. But what Paul is actually saying is that even though Paul does not know the Colossian church, Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. Um, we believe that it was uh, planted by Epaphras. Epaphras probably heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus. There's some conjecture there. But regardless, we know that Paul never went through Colossae during his missionary journeys. And so it, we, we, we know that Paul did not plant the church. But what, what Paul is saying is that God has called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to be the one who brings the good news of Jesus beyond the walls of Jerusalem and Judea in, into Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And that's Paul's calling is to be the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying is that I'm with you in spirit because the mission that Jesus gave me, you are an outworking of that mission. And what it does is it helps us recognize that, number one, Paul had a pretty big role. But beyond that, it helps us recognize that there is a togetherness that we actually have in the body of Christ. And what makes it possible for Paul to be with them in spirit is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of Paul. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of the Colossian Christians. And the same spirit unites Paul and the Colossians and us with Christ. So that there is a sense in which that every believer everywhere and even for all time, which is kind of trippy, we are united together because of our union with Christ. We may have differences. We may have disagreements. We may worship differently. We may speak different languages. We have, may have different socioeconomic statuses. We may have different political opinions. We may uh, look 
uh, different in the way that we assemble and congregate. We may live in a modern era and there have been Christians in ancient eras. We may have different color of skin. There are a thousand things that may differentiate us from one another. But one thing that unites us together is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us if we're Christian, if we believe in Jesus and have put our trust in him for eternal life, that the spirit of God resides in us and we are made united to Jesus, which means we are united to one another. That should make us think about the way we treat one another. When Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you Love each other, right? And when we recognize that we have union together with one another, despite all of the differences because of Christ, oh my gosh. Now those differences become strengths. We, we look at each other with dignity, with value, and we say, wow, that, that in Christ we are with you in spirit. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. He continues to say, for though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. These two phrases, uh, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So good order and firmness both relate to the Greek phalanx or the Roman legion. This was a military term. Uh, The uh, soldiers would group up together and become essentially an impenetrable force. There was no chinks in the armor because they were united together. They were ordered together. And because of that, they were extremely firm. That it was very difficult to push them back. Very difficult to defeat them. And so what Paul is saying is that I'm rejoicing because I want to see how well ordered you are in your faith and how firm you are as a result of that. So that as you have the clarity of who Jesus is and the clarity of his supremacy, and the clarity of the truth of the gospel, that you become this impenetrable force, firm in your faith, not easily swayed, not easily moved, not easily deluded by plausible arguments or any other thing. When circumstances get difficult, when your faith is challenged, when you wonder where God might be, but because of your clarity on who Jesus is, that your life and your faith is in good order, and that it is immovable, And that it is firm, firmly rooted in Christ. Your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Not the firmness of your ability to to behave rightly. Not the firmness of your ability to live the Christian life with perfection. Not the firmness uh, uh, that you never doubt, that, that you never struggle, that you never, you know, snap at your roommate or fight with your spouse or you know, get upset when somebody cuts you off in traffic or veers into you because they're on, on their phone. You're all mad at them. And then you check your phone. Like, right. Like he's not saying I, I, I'm, I'm rejoicing to look at how well you've got your life in order. What he's saying is I, I'm excited to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus and that your faith in Jesus would produce a life that is unmovable and unshakable. But you know, what's so interesting is that Paul could have left this thought there, but he continues the thought because it would be probably unhelpful for us to believe that our life as Christians is meant to be in a position of being hunkered down. That idea of being 
uh, rooted, that idea of being, um, what does he say? Good order. That idea of good order and, and that idea of firmness actually kind of sounds like stationary, doesn't it? But when you do kind of study what the Greek phalanx was about or, or the Roman legion was about is that they were able to be stationary when necessary, but they were also able to advance in, uni- in unison. They were able to continue and they were able to take ground through that good order and through that firmness, they were able to advance. And so Paul gives us a picture of the Christian life that is not simply hunkered down like, well, let's just hang on to our Bibles until the return of Christ. The, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket, right? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> we're not defeated. We are in Christ victorious. That doesn't mean we're going to get the best parking spots and all of the uh, promotions at work. And, you know, we're going to have 2.3 children and a white picket fence. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about victory in Christ means that we don't cower under pressure, whether it's from the outside or even from inside. And so this idea of being uh, built up, being rooted, being being, uh, firm, Paul brings that to the table in this next verse, but I love that he starts in verse six by saying this. So first he gives us the phalanx, uh, the legion as a picture. And then he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Move forward. (laughs) Don't just stay stagnant. Don't just remain in one spot. Don't just hunger down. We are not in the posture of the, de- the, the defensive. We're in the posture of the offensive. What Jesus said is that, that, that he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates are meant to keep things in and rather in addition to that to keep things out. Things from the outside from coming inside. So when Jesus says the church is going to prevail over the gates of hell, that is an offensive statement that Jesus is making is that the the church is going to invade the darkness. The church is going to bring light into the darkness. The church is going to move the gospel forward and the gates of hell are going to do their best to keep every person, every soul, every reality at bay. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the forward movement of the church. So therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. We're continuing our journey forward. We're continuing moving forward. But verse seven, Paul gives us a mixed metaphor. So he's saying, so go ahead and walk in Jesus. But then he says it like this, being rooted And built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. So Paul wants us to walk in Christ, but meanwhile being rooted like a tree. Being built up like a building on a foundation. And this metaphor that Paul gives, this idea of being rooted, built up, and established... Seems very stationary again, right? And yet he starts in verse six by saying, so walk in him. It kind of reminds me of like any Lord of the Rings fans that those trees that are kind of on the, Billy, what are those trees called in the Lord of the Rings? The Ents. Yes. And if I, if I understand it correctly, 
uh, all the female ants are gone and, and it's just the males left and they're, they're trying to, I don't really know what the plot line is. They're trying to find them, yeah. So there are these big trees and they got big roots, but then they like move forward, which is cool, but also weird, right? And that's really what Paul is kind of getting at is that we would be like these massive ent trees or oak trees or, or trees that have big roots, but that we're not stationary and hunkered down, but that we're moving forward. We're on mission. We're going to fun. Man, I love that. It's like we're going to seek and save that which is lost. We're going to invade the un, unredeemed places. We're, we're taking the light into the darkness. And, and, and yet at the same time, our roots go deep. That, that when the wind comes and the storm blows, our, our house is built on a firm foundation. Jesus said, don't build your house in the sand like foolish people do. When the winds come and the wind, winds blow and the storm comes in, it, it wrecks the house. But if you build your life on the rock, which Jesus is saying, I'm the rock, the storm and the wind and all of that will come and the house will stand. And so Paul brings this mixed metaphor to the table and kind of giving us that picture of this big old oak tree that's kind of moving forward, that we're firmly planted, firmly rooted, but we're on mission on mission. Paul had the original idea for the mobile home or for uh, uh, the recreational vehicle, right? It's this thing that, that, is, that is solid, yet it's able to move, right? Danny's giving me the, uh, the courtesy chuckle on the second row. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate that. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll file that away in like jokes to not repeat. There we go. So Paul said that, that we're rooted and, bound and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. What this really kind of brings out, this picture that Paul brings to the table, comes from Psalm chapter 1. This would have been one of the most important psalms to every Jewish person. Psalm chapter 1. Let's turn there together because I want to read it. It's so good. And psalm chapter 1 kind of stands at the head of all of the book of Psalms. It's kind of like, a, um, like the... Uh, introduction chapter that kind of is the heading for every other chapter that comes. Psalm 1 and 2 kind of serve in that way. But Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 says, blessed is the man or, or woman, but blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So there's walks, nor stands in the way of sinners, so stands, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So it kind of covers all of the different movement possibilities. I guess he could have said run, but there's this moving, there's this stationary, and then there's this like really stationary idea. But Paul is, uh, Paul, the author of the psalmist is saying, blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The, the, the psalmist is saying the person who is not making company with those who will bring plausible arguments to the table, who will be the type of people who will uh, continue in sin and scoff at the truth and mock who God is. The psalmist is saying, the person who does not make company with those people is blessed. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, in the word of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This idea of this well-planted tree where the roots run deep and it's near this river and, and the leaves are green and it's flourishing and it's bearing fruit 
That's what it's like to live this life that's rooted and built up and established in our faith in Christ. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that just blow away. Because there's no root. There's no foundation. What Paul is trying to invite us into through the book of Colossians is this life that is rooted and found in him. Just as we were taught. We're not making up anything new. This is what we were taught through the scriptures, through uh, the, the leaders in our life that showed us Jesus, that we are taught to follow after him, to pursue him, to live for him, to, to place our life in him, just as we are taught so that we may be abounding in thanksgiving. If you've been walking with us through the book of Colossians, you'll, you'll know that, that Colossians, uh, thanksgiving is a bit of a sub theme in this book. That, that the idea is that when we actually see Jesus for who he is and that he has come for us and wants us to know him, that our lives are lived in response to him. And the only proper response to who Jesus is, is just thanksgiving. Just say, Jesus, you've been so kind to us. You've been so good to us that, that though we were your enemies, though we were sinners, though we rebelled against you, though we were orphaned because of our sin, Jesus, you came in. You became like one of us. You took on human flesh and dwelt among us. You lived the life we should have lived but did not live. And then you died the death that we deserved, bearing the wrath of God, joyfully drinking the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf, who for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And you and I were that joy that was set before Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? This world, by the way, you want to talk about philosophies and arguments that the world brings to the tables that we're all a product of chance. We're just all a product of massive chance and a lot of time. And and, and those two things kind of came together. And here we are. And your value and your worth is about the sum of chance and time. Jesus said, the value of your worth is my blood. So Jesus came, lived, died, resurrected from the dead so that you and I could know him. And the only response that makes any sense is thanksgiving. That we would abound in thanksgiving. I I, I tell you what, you know, this... This idea that, that, that the Apostle Paul is bringing to the table in order that we may not be deluded by plausible arguments, that the way that we live this life and, and are uh, an impenetrable force like that phalanx or that legion where we're rooted and built up in Jesus, it, it really kind of describes the journey of discipleship, doesn't it? Just as we were taught, Right. And I love the Disney campus. I love uh, this expression of Mosaic Church because discipleship matters deeply here. And I look around at some people who I know well and some people I don't know as well. But as I look around, I know that there are relationships that are sitting in this room. And even for those of you who are joining us online where you've invested in one another, that you've helped each other, that you've cared for each other, that you've taught each other what it looks like and what it means to be a follower of Jesus that you've demonstrated what it looks like to not be deluded by plausible arguments, but have a life that's rooted in Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're like, man, that 
sounds awesome, but I just feel like I'm constantly being tossed back and forth between one conversation and another about what I should believe or what I should be doing or how I should be living my life. And I'm, I'm pursuing my, my career and my dreams through Disney or Universal or wherever I may be. And, and, and I'm trying to kind of figure out this life. And I, and I hear Joel talking about this Jesus person, and it sounds very very compelling, this idea of who Jesus is. And I've heard about him before and I've heard about the Bible, but then there's stuff I've heard about the Bible I'm not so sure about. And I just really don't know where to begin. And what we would like to invite you into is a journey of discipleship. And discipleship is just kind of a big word that, that says, I'm following Jesus. Do you, want to, do you want me to show you how I do that? It's pretty simple. It's just life on life where we're following Jesus together. No one here uh, has a, a corner on what it means to follow Jesus. No one's got it perfectly. No one's doing it exactly right. But we're all imperfectly pursuing Jesus together. I grew up playing golf and uh, golf is an interesting game. It's really hard to learn. And what's interesting is if you start tracking your score when you first begin playing golf, first of all, it's hard to even learn how to track your score, right? But when you first start tracking your score, the number's really big, right? And that's bad news because in golf, you're supposed to have a low number. That's the goal. But the good news about starting out with that really big number is even though the process is a little messy, you struggle, you don't, you don't figure it all out right away, improvement comes pretty fast. Like when you're real bad at golf and you're shooting like 150 on 18 holes, shaving 10 strokes off your game is not bad. Not, not hard. You can just learn a couple of little tips and 10 strokes go like that. But it's messy. And you often need someone who's been playing the game longer than you to kind of show you the way. And for you who are very new to this following Jesus thing, I understand that it's daunting. I get it. I understand the concept that when you look at the Bible, you're like, that is not a small book. And it's not exactly like a novel, right? There's a lot in this and it can be intimidating and I get that and I understand that. But what I want to invite you into is the recognition that there are others who have been walking this road for a while who will show you the way. And the beauty is, is you can grow pretty fast. In fact, many of us, as we look back on our lives, for those of you who have been following Jesus, maybe let's do a show of hands. If you've been following Jesus a long time do you remember back at the early days of your walk with Jesus and feel like it was so much easier to grow back then? Anybody feel like, yeah, absolutely. There is a reason for that. There's a reason that it's so much easier when you're brand new. It's because there's so much to learn. There's so much to understand. There's so much to experience. But following Jesus for a long time sometimes can get a little stale, a little old. Sometimes other things can catch our attention. We can become distracted. And from time to time, we need others to help us along in our journey as well, even if we've been following Jesus for a long time. And for you, I would encourage you, yes, it may take forever to shave off 10 strokes, right? It may take forever for you to feel like you're getting one stroke, and, and please don't mix up this illustration. Every illustration fails at some point. Following after Jesus is not like, you know, you, you get some sort of score and, and you're being judged against someone else's score. It's not like that. But the concept that following Jesus and growing in him 
is attainable and, and is something that he's inviting us into is exactly what the apostle Paul is talking about here. And for you, for, for you who have followed Jesus for a while, I would say, hey, don't give up knowing that it's difficult to see improvement, to see change, to see growth in your relationship with God. Don't give up. Continue to pursue after him. Continue being in, in, involved in discipleship. I'm running very, very low on time. So I want to kind of close with uh, this idea. Number one, uh, if uh, I'd like to kind of give you a five Real quick, five ideas for what it looks like to actively make intentional choices to grow in your relationship with God. And I'm going to go through this fast because I am losing time. Uh, The first thing is make sure that you have friends that are actively following Jesus. So number one is friendship. You need good friends that are actively following Jesus. That doesn't mean all your friends have to be Christ followers. In fact, if all of your friends are Christ followers, you're more in that hunkered down stage, right? And maybe for a season you need that. But in general, make sure that you have a few close friends that are actively following Jesus and join them in that. Number two, um, man, we need mentors that are discipling us. We need people that are pouring into our lives. So find someone who's further along in the journey and ask them to be a part of your story. Number three, hey, read the Bible. Like read it. I know it's daunting. I know there's like, oh, you might have a lot of questions. That's what mentors are for, right? Read the Bible, study the Bible, listen to sermons, make sure they're from solid people. Danny can help you with that. Um, Your mentor can help you with that. Not every person who preaches the Bible is preaching the truth. Number four, engage in the disciplines of the faith. The disciplines of the faith. We'll get to that in just a moment of what what that could look like. And then number five, when God makes you ready, and and sometimes God just plops this in your lap. Sometimes you have to kind of ramp up for this, but, but be pouring into other people. Whatever it is that God has given you, you can share with someone else. And so disciple others. So those are your five things. Friends, mentors, read the Bible, the disciplines of the faith, and disciple others. So how do you kind of get started in all of this? I want to let's throw this up on the screen here real quick. I want to point you to three resources, um, three resources. So if you're brand new with the Bible, if you're like, gosh, this thing is so intimidating. I don't even know where to go. Max Anders wrote a book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Unlock the scriptures in 15 minutes a day. And here's the reality. The Bible you could study for a lifetime and you won't have unlocked everything that is there. Okay. Uh, we, will, we will be digging into who Jesus is for all of eternity. But in 30 days and in 15 minutes, you can kind of get a good overview and understanding of what the Bible is. So when you pick up 1 John, you know what you're picking up, okay? When you pick up Leviticus, you know what you're picking up, okay? 30 days to understand the Bible. I talked about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney is a great resource. Uh, it helps under, helps all of us as we pursue Jesus to have spiritual practices that are not rooted in like, I don't know, worldliness, like oh, send positive vibes, you know, to the universe. No, none of that, but actual Christian spiritual disciplines of prayer, of Bible reading, of Bible memorization, of fasting, of Christian meditation, those types of things. And what it will do, and I love this, is that every um, chapter is each spiritual discipline, and it demonstrates what each spiritual discipline and its purpose is, and it's for godliness. It's for becoming more and more like 
Jesus. So I love that. And then the last one is Christian beliefs by Wayne Grudem. That's really more of a theological understanding. So once you're kind of in the swing of like, okay, I know what the Bible's all about. I'm starting to engage with God. Christian beliefs is really a good theological framework. And theology is just the study of God. Um, A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about us is what we think when we conceive of God. Let that land for just a moment. The most, in thing, most important thing about us is what we think when we conceive of God. And Christian beliefs will help with that so that we're conceiving of the one true God and not something that we imagine, okay? I am well beyond the amount of time that was allotted to me. But guys, tonight, if there's nothing else that you walk away with, walk away with this. The invitation on our lives, the calling on our lives today as Paul has unpacked through Colossians is that we continually follow after Jesus, that we walk in him, that we're rooted in him, that we're not uh, deluded by plausible arguments, but that we continue our faith journey and we invite others into that, that, that it's not about hunkering down in our little Christian corner, but it's about following after Jesus and walking in him and growing in him during that process. Man, so good. It's so good what Jesus has done. It's so good who he is. And it's so good to learn more about that every day. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, your word is uh, just so encouraging. I, I recognize Jesus, uh, that, that we're all in different places in lives. We're all in a, in a bit of a different space. We all have different experiences. We've all walked through different realities. And yet the calling on our lives is the same. To walk in you, Jesus. To be rooted in you. To be found in you. To live for you and to invite others to live for you as well. So God, tonight uh, we confess that all of us have room to grow. That we all have opportunities to become more and more and more like you. There are areas of our lives where all of us are struggling in one way or another. But Jesus, you haven't left us alone to figure that out on our own. But you've invited us into relationship and intimacy with you. So for that, we say thank you. Help us to abound in thanksgiving and to live for you. God, for anyone here who is just getting started in their relationship with the Lord, I pray that they would jump into a relationship with somebody who's further along and that they would learn what it means to follow after you, that they would dig into those resources, that they would dig into your word, that they would dig into the truth of the gospel and be found in you. And for those of us who've been walking after you for a long time, but maybe we feel stale, maybe we feel disconnected, maybe we feel discouraged. Jesus, that you would meet us exactly where we're at. God, we recognize that you are good and that your faithfulness endures. Help us to be rooted and established in you. And God, help us to live our lives for your honor and for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.